Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, a show by working people for working people in New York City. My name is Mel Gonzalez, one of your hosts. And my name is Lupita Romero, and I'm your other host for tonight. This week, we're going to continue our coverage about the city's rush to reopen the courts. But we'll also get to talk about another issue we haven't talked about yet, which is immigrant workers who are being excluded from unemployment relief here in New York City. But first, here's Danny and Khadija with some of our headlines this week. Hey, everyone. First, I want to welcome Khadija Metter to Wharton Class Heroes. We're so happy to have you join our team. Thanks, Danny. I'm happy to be here. Let's get started. This past week, Kenosha, Wisconsin police officer Rustin Chesky shot 29-year-old Jacob Blake in his back seven times outside his car while Blake's three children sat inside. Blake, who is African-American and was unarmed, has been paralyzed from the waist down. In the hospital, Blake was handcuffed to his bed. In the midst of protests that arose in Kenosha in response, Kyle Rittenhouse, a white 17-year-old from Illinois, who identified himself as a member of the Kenosha Guard militia, shot three people, killing 26-year-old Anthony Huber and 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum and injuring 26-year-old Gage Grosskreutz. Kenosha police, who earlier were seen thanking armed militia members and giving them water, allowed Rittenhouse to walk free after his shooting. He has since been charged with multiple crimes, including first-degree intentional homicide and possession of a dangerous weapon under the age of 18. Kenosha Police Chief Daniel Miskinis blamed Rittenhouse's double homicide on protesters for being out after curfew. The shooting of Jacob Blake has sparked renewed Black Lives Matter protests across the country, including historic strike action by professional athletes in basketball, baseball, and soccer. So far in 2020, police have killed at least 751 people in 235 days. There have only been 12 days in 2020 where the police did not kill someone. In other news, New York City is facing enormous budget cuts. Mayor Bill de Blasio is warning that 22,000 city workers could be laid off. The mayor is planning to lay off 400 EMS workers, 10% of the entire EMS workforce, a move that can have catastrophic effects if a second wave of COVID hits the city this fall. The only major city agency that is not facing layoffs is the police department. Meanwhile, the MTA has resumed charging bus fares and at the end of the month will stop funding free cab rides for workers stranded by the nighttime closure of the subway system. The agency released a so-called doomsday budget that warns of fare hikes up to 375 and 40% service cuts to buses and trains if it isn't able to secure $12 billion in additional funding. Many advocates are demanding that the city and state tax billionaires to address the budget crisis caused by the recession. Americas for Tax Fairness has found that New York City's billionaires have increased their net worth by $77 billion since the start of the pandemic. That's enough to fund the budget gaps of New York City, New York State, and the MTA many times over. Last Saturday, protests happened to defend the post office and voting rights in over 800 locations. The protests were in reaction to Donald Trump's recent statements expressing concerns about the U.S. Postal Service's ability to handle mail-in ballots, while he's refusing to invest in it so that it can handle the increased number of mail-in ballots expected this election. 
In Washington, D.C., protests have been occurring outside Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's home. DeJoy has been found to have over $70 million invested in USPS's competitors, meaning that the person in charge of the USPS could financially benefit from its destruction. If the post office can't handle mail-in ballots, it could have a major impact on the election, because up to 40% of Americans have said they plan to vote by mail this year. In the 2016 campaign, DeJoy donated more than $440,000 to the Trump Victory Fund, the inaugural committee, and the Republican National Committee. Finally, the battle over the reopening of New York City public schools is getting more intense, as over 1,700 schools are set to open in 12 days without many of the public health measures in place that many educators and families believe are necessary to prevent fueling a second wave of COVID infection. The city is currently averaging about 600 new COVID cases every day, much smaller than many other parts of the U.S., but still much higher than the per capita infection rates in European countries that have reopened schools. United Federation of Teachers President Michael Mulgrew has threatened to strike if the city tries to open schools without having safety plans that include testing students and teachers and all schools having adequate ventilation and a nurse on site. The movement of rank-and-file educators, a social justice caucus inside the UFT, is calling for schools to operate remotely until the city goes 14 days without a new COVID case, and that schools be adequately funded to support students learning inside and outside the building. As of now, Governor Cuomo is planning to cut state funding for schools by 20%, which could lead to layoffs of 9,000 New York City teachers. For more background on the organizing that has been going on inside the Teachers Union, you can listen to our interview with UFT member Ronnie Almonte. You can find the episode at our website, wchradio.org, or by doing an internet search for the episode title, Fighting for Public Education, Not Cops. And of course, we'll be covering this story in upcoming weeks. That's it for headlines. Back to Lupita and Mel. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Oh, this is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. The police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. Yeah, I got the strap. Yeah, I got a carrier. Yeah. I'ma go into this, this is Gorilla-ish, yeah I'ma go get the bag, I'ma go get the bag, yeah, yeah I'm so cold like, yeah, I'm so dope like, yeah We gon' blow like, yeah Look how I'm kicking now, I'm so fitted, yeah I'm so Gucci, yeah, yeah I'm so pretty, yeah Hundred band, hundred band, hundred band Cut your band, cut your band, cut your band I got the plug and why I got they gonna find you like that
You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. That was a cover by Jeremy Jones of Childish Gambino's This Is America. Welcome back, listeners. Later on in the episode, we'll be hearing from our correspondents about the way that legal workers are organizing to keep courts closed. But before we do, we want to talk about an ongoing issue in New York City that we have not been able to talk about much. The ongoing exclusion of undocumented immigrants from most forms of financial assistance that's available to citizens during the pandemic. Undocumented workers in New York City and throughout the country are not eligible for most forms of federal assistance, including some of the stimulus checks and unemployment insurance that people have been applying for and receiving during this pandemic. Even though they pay taxes which fund those benefits and have actually been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, all the while comprising over 20% of the essential workforce nationwide and over 50% in New York City alone. The federal stimulus package explicitly excluded undocumented people. But in some states like California, which has one of the largest populations of undocumented immigrants in the country, the state actually created a disaster relief fund for immigrant families, which was a fund of $125 million that went specifically to help undocumented and immigrant families who were excluded from federal funds. In New York City, community and mutual aid organizations had to organize community fundraisers in order to offer any sort of assistance to the estimated 3.1 million immigrants in New York City. A growing coalition of immigrant rights organizations, including Desi's Rising Up and Moving, the Laundry Workers Center, the Street Vendor Project, Make the Road, and others, have been organizing to pressure Cuomo and all of Albany to tax the 118 billionaires currently living in New York City and use that money to create a fund for immigrant families. This past Tuesday, they staged a protest highlighting Cuomo's lack of action for 150 days since the start of the pandemic, demanding an excluded workers fund, a cancel rent bill, and a free them all bill to release incarcerated individuals. Here is what one of the participants had to say. What message are you here to send to Governor Cuomo? Uh, we're sending a message that a tax to the rich, not to the poor. Uh, another thing is you have to give a break for people who have a rent. We need to have, you know, any any proposal to do any changes in many different ways. For instance, uh, especially uh, the hard worker, they don't have no benefits, and we need a lot of things that he knows that what to do. That was Vicente with Make the Road New York. And Make the Road New York, as well as 50 other organizations throughout the city, have signed on to a letter demanding that Governor Cuomo pass a tax on billionaires in order to create a fund for all the workers who are currently excluded from any sort of state subsidy. But this isn't even the first protest that they've carried out. For a couple of weeks now, there's been ongoing protests. And a couple of weeks ago, they actually did an encampment by Madison Square Park, which is only a couple feet away from where Jeff Bezos, one of the biggest billionaires in the country, lives, precisely to make the point that while billionaires in this city are continuing to grow their wealth, undocumented immigrants are literally going day to day without basic necessities. 
And Mel, I know that you worked for Make the Road for a little while, actually, and so you're familiar with them as an organization and the immigrant community that they serve. Why has Make the Road chosen to fight for an excluded workers fund? And what do you think that immigrant activists can expect from Cuomo in all of this? I think one of the ways that Make the Road has been trying to deal with this issue since the pandemic started, they put out a survey recently showing just how much just how much immigrants have been affected by the pandemic, showing that over 80% of members have lost um, financial income throughout this time and that workers continue, that most of the members of Make the Road, for example, have continued to work throughout all this time. Um, but folks hear all the time, oh, we're going to get a stimulus check, oh, we're going to get some kind of funding, and oh, you know, we really support essential workers and their heroes and stuff like that. But in reality, most of the people in New York who are doing the work that we consider essential aren't getting any of that funding, aren't getting any assistance. And maybe the most they're getting is a few articles written here and there talking about, oh, essential workers are so important. So I think that that's really animating a lot of the work. What do you think you've been seeing around the city I think one of the things that's most enraging for me about this issue, and, and I say enraging, you know, as, as an undocumented immigrant myself um, and with parents who are undocumented and are in the service industry, my mom is actually um, a housekeeper and my dad is a day laborer, construction worker. And so both of them were very much affected by the pandemic, not able to pay their rent. And they've been working in this country for over 20 years. And so the idea that people can work for over 20 years, um, pay their taxes, you know, be the citizens that people expect them to be and still not get any sort of assistance with a situation like this pandemic has been very hurtful on a personal level. But I also think on a national level, you know, mm. most popular polls, election after election, actually show that most Americans support extending social program benefits like social security, financial aid for higher education, um, as well as other forms of city and state assistance to undocumented immigrants. And so the exclusion of undocumented immigrants from any of these services is not something that's congruent with the popular opinion of Americans. And so you have to think about what the interest yeah. is for politicians to keep excluding people when on a national level, that's not a popular opinion. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that in terms of popular opinion, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the activism right now is about funding increased benefits by taxing, um, taxing the rich and New York city in particular is home to Jeff Bezos and tons of other extremely wealthy people. And what's been so I think enraging for a lot of people is seeing how a lot of these companies have actually become become wealthier and a lot of these individuals have become wealthier. I think Jeff Bezos has become $48 billion richer since the start of the pandemic. Yeah. And I think that there's, when I was reading about this issue, I actually found that this is an ongoing pattern where in the U.S., there are disasters that are very much mis mishandled by state and federal administration. So this was the case with Hurricane Katrina 
as well as Hurricane Sandy here in the East Coast a couple years after that. And in both instances, we saw that the disaster relief carried out by the national and state governments was completely insufficient. Um, people were left homeless and without any sort of social safety net. And in both of those crises, um, the aftermath actually showed that during and after those crises, while the American people affected by them were pushed into poverty, um, some of the wealthiest people in the country actually made a killing off of those disasters um, in the way of making more profit from their own companies. Yeah, and you know, I feel like it's really beautiful and at the same time kind of tragic to see the way that all these organizations and new organizations have sprung up to to provide assistance, provide aid, provide groceries, provide, you know, toilet paper, air conditioners. You know, I, I'm like part of a, a few groups here and I see the way that they organize all of these assistance programs, all of this reimbursement, all of these donations. And it's it's really beautiful and it's clear that, you know, people can take care of themselves um, even even in a situation like this, but at the same time, it's so enraging to to see the state and and the government, local, state, and federal are just unwilling to really account for the reality of people's experiences, and instead we're left to to take care of ourselves. No, absolutely. You know, the the last thing I'll say is that aside from you know, the issues that undocumented workers continue to face and, and will be facing, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, there's also a lot of the stories that we're also hearing is that undocumented workers, when they die in hospitals or when they go to hospitals, they don't get the same treatment that other patients do. And so we're definitely seeing undocumented people being turned back from hospitals. Um, we've definitely heard thousands of stories of undocumented immigrants who have passed away because of COVID and who don't have any immediate family in the country, whose, fam whose friends don't know what their family information is. And a lot of these immigrants, you know, who have passed away, they're sort of stuck here. Um, their families can get their bodies back home to their countries. Um, if they do have family here, if the family is undocumented, it's really hard for them to fund the funeral expenses. And while the city offers funeral expenses aid to citizens, um, and to eligible people for undocumented immigrants, these funds are also not available. And so I think that we've, aside from the mutual aid efforts and the demands for Cuomo to create a fund to cover some of these costs, um, the city has also had to make many exceptions to a lot of their social programs, um, like public assistance, so that they can offer some of this assistance to undocumented immigrants. Um, and so I think for me, it's just been really hard to see that the mutual aid efforts that people have organized, you know, as you said, it, it has been beautiful to see the way that community comes together. And I think the sentiment um, that was confirmed um, that these this country does not care about undocumented immigrants at all and is not trying to bring them into the fabric of society in any way. On a federal level, 
There's no movement on immigration reforms. It's not even one of the main issues in the election anymore, the way that it has been in past elections. Um, and even though we've seen this impact of the pandemic on the immigrant on immigrant families, it's still not a major topic in the election. AOC, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a congresswoman from Jackson Heights, one of the most affected areas, has been doing a lot of mutual aid efforts and has helped in some ways um, immigrant families in her district. But at the same time, she was elected on a platform specifically about abolishing ICE. And it's been really hard to see that even politicians who've gotten elected partially because of their radical stances on immigration um, right now are not able to move forward on some of these bills or some of these efforts to include immigrant immigrants in, in city and state programs, but also on a federal level um, for federal stimulus um, and relief funds um, like the one we've seen in, in this pandemic. Thanks for sharing that, Lupita, and we're going to continue following this issue. But now we want to shift to a story we began to cover last week, legal workers' efforts to stop courts from reopening. The disruption here has been striking, and I want to say to everyone in the court system, to the DAs, NYPD, everyone went through massive disruption. A lot of people were sick. Uh, it was impossible to do some of the normal things because of the precautions that had to be taken. So this is very clearly something where we're all in it together. I want to make sure everyone hears that. We are all in this together and everyone's been through a tremendous amount of disruption. But now is the time to overcome that and start to rebuild so we can really address the violence issue together.
On our last show, we covered a rally organized by legal workers, their unions, and others involved in keeping the courts closed during the COVID-19 pandemic. This was back in July, when Mayor de Blasio began pushing for the criminal courts to get back to work at their full capacity. The mayor made these arguments because he believes it will address a rise in gun violence and help bring the gun violence back down. In our segment, we question the mayor's logic, and so has everyone else. Right-wing critics blame de Blasio for using the courts as a scapegoat instead of being tougher on crime and supporting the NYPD more visibly. His left-wing critics accuse him of selling out to the forces of law and order, and for his court-oriented solutions to gun violence, potentially exposing the same black, Latino, immigrant, and low-income communities who were so devastated by the first wave of the pandemic. This is why we're covering the reopening of the courts and the consequences this will have, along with the fights to stop a deadly second wave. This week, we're going to speak with legal worker Jalen about how he got involved in this fight and why he and other legal workers across the city are mobilizing to stop the Office of Court Administration, or OCA, and the mayor from getting the courts back up to full speed. My name is Jalen. I'm from North Carolina, um, but my, I'm from like the coastal area of North Carolina. My dad's from the Bronx, um, South Bronx. So I would spend my summers in the Bronx and, you know, go to school in North Carolina. And now I live in uh, Crown Heights. Uh, I work at a public defender law firm um, in New York. I work for um, what we call the decarceration project, which is basically um, getting people out of jail pre-trial and then um, handling any issues with like the New York City Department of Corrections. So I work as a paralegal and I think most of my um, job duties is like, um, you know, talking with families about how they can, how they can uh, best pay to get their loved one free, which is a shame that that even has to happen. You may remember Jalen. He spoke out at the rally we covered on our last show calling out the mayor and OCA for their lack of action in the face of the pandemic. We asked him how he got involved. So this takes it back a little bit to my old job. When I first started that job um, and a part of the onboarding process, one of the questions that they asked was like, um, or like not even really a question, but one of the statements was like, I... I agree that while working this position, I will not attempt to unionize. So when I got to um, where I'm at now and they do have unions um, and I was already like interested. So I ran as a union delegate. And then once this happened with the courts reopening, I created a, a link that like generates a pre-populated email to send to all of the New York City council members and um, the mayor and the New York courts. Um, and I guess when I did that, people started to see that I was interested in like um, organizing, like rallying behind things. So then I was put into this um, joint organizing team between 1199 and ALAA, which is the uh, attorney's union at my job. From there on, um, we were talking about organizing the rally. Um, we needed a speaker from 1199 and I was reluctant at first. I was like, okay, like, um, I mean, if you can't find anyone else, I'll do it. Um, but then I wrote my speech and I was like, you know what? Actually, I do want to do this. Had you done that before? Had you like spoken at a rally or, or done any like social movement organizing? 
Um, I've never spoken in a rally. I mean, I spoke in my high school graduation. <laughs> so there's that, um, but never at like a rally. Here's a short clip of Jalen's speech at the rally. This decision made by Judge DeFiori comes at a time where it feels more important now than ever to uplift black and indigenous people of color communities. And instead of uplifting, she's handing out backhand slaps to the faces of everyone in these communities, our communities. When you see, when you see the same patterns of injustice day in and day out, you realize that the criminal punishment system is not broken, but it's designed as a tool for white supremacy and oppression. And with the overwhelming evidence in this case, the verdict is clear. Black lives do not matter to OCA. Why are legal workers getting so fired up about this? So I think um, with the Black Lives Matter um, and the people who are advocating for the courts to be closed, I think that it only like strengthens the passion of people who are advocating for the courts to be closed, right? Like, like we believe that Black Lives Matter. We believe that like you should believe that Black Lives Matter. And if you do believe that Black Lives Matter, you should close courts, right? You should keep the courts closed. You shouldn't be evicting people in the middle of a pandemic. You shouldn't be having people risk their lives to go to court. You're, you're risking all these people who are primarily black and brown because they might be the over police of black and brown communities. And you're putting them at risk of like potential death for things that just don't have to happen in court. They can very much happen virtually because they have been happening virtually, right? The overlapping crisis of the pandemic, racism, and economic uncertainty is hitting the people legal aid workers most often help and represent. It's important to note that a significant size of the legal workforce also comes from these black and brown communities. And they've all seen firsthand the slow response to protect these communities and their coworkers from the pandemic. Jalen told us about how his organization's slow response led to the unnecessary death of a coworker. It's, it's honestly a tragedy that, 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 that his death even occurred because it should have never have happened. You know, like this person was um, someone who was like, um, like a, a little bit on the older side, you know, who was also like, I believe, immunocompromised. Management was like fully aware of the fact, right? He even put in a request um, for accommodation that they denied. So him and his wife both work at, you know, this organization. For him and his wife to both be infected with the COVID and then to him to die um, is it, really, it's just, I don't even know what to say. I want to say to slap in the face, but that's like, that is like too light. You know, it is really like they spat in the face of, of our coworkers. Despite the slow response at the beginning, his employer's disapproval with the reopening of courts at its full capacity changed Jalen's opinion on how his employer was prioritizing staff safety. But it didn't stay that way for too long. You know, at first I thought they were handling it well. Um, I thought, you know, like they're sending everyone home. By Monday, by Monday coming around, they were like already like, okay, you know what? Like everyone just has to stay home. Um, which is nice because I was thought, okay, like maybe these people do care. Like maybe they, maybe they, um, you know, actually care about the lives of their workers. Um, and now I'm not as um, confident in that belief. They went from saying that, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to uh, force anyone to go into the office. Um, you know, they were in, in support of the unions and their, their decision. They were even sued, like, the Office of Court Administration. And now suddenly they're saying, oh, well, you know, like, um, on September 15th, 
everyone, we, we're going to start going to the office. The return to work date of September 15th only pushed legal workers to organize harder and across different legal aid organizations, calling for a virtual town hall of legal workers to discuss their reaction to the reopening of the offices. Here are some clips from how this town hall started. The purpose of this conversation is basically to discuss how we can collectively resist OCA's unsafe and unnecessary reopening of the courts, as well as efforts by management in our various offices that require staff members to return to the offices in person, despite the ongoing pandemic. Too often, OCA pits our offices against each other, while management tries to pit our interests against the interests of our clients. So by hosting this cross-union, cross-organization forum, our goal is to begin to share ideas and strengthen our ability to collaborate across our organizations and across our unions. Instead of standing separately, we want to stand in solidarity so that we can take joint actions that actually weaken OCA's ability to divide us while strengthening our ability to hold the line and not have to return to court or our offices until we actually believe that it's safe to do so. We all know we have the same goal. None of us should be made to sacrifice our health and safety for the sake of OCA's backlog. Nor should our clients be made to return to unsafe, unventilated courtrooms that will only increase the spread of COVID-19, particularly in black and brown communities that have already been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and the legal system. Instead of improving remote access, OCA has shown no regard for our clients or our lives. And sadly, in many cases, our managements have capitulated or been complicit. And so it's up to us to act. I think this is the very beginning of a, a different dynamic um, and, and the massive increase of unionization um, that's happened in these different uh, agencies um, just gives us new opportunities to build solidarity across shops, across um, job titles, you know, not just between practices, but actually, you know, dealing with the court issue as a whole, all the courts, criminal courts, civil, immigration, etc. Um, and not getting siloed, as someone said, um, in our different practice areas and our different uh, areas. Um, and I think that that's going to be so important to have a united front against the mayor, against the governor, against OCA, um, in demanding that the priorities that they use to run the city are based on health and safety and not just getting back to quote-unquote normal. This virtual town hall is historic for the reasons legal workers are arguing. They are organizing across different shops to overcome their divisions imposed by the city and their employers, giving them a louder voice to advocate for New Yorkers outside the confines of a legal case. You know, we're part of the most unionized city in the country. And right now, teachers are also fighting for their health and safety concerns. Um, there's other workers as well. Like, I think we need to see, you know, what we do is actually going to have an impact on all sorts of services and the, the way that New York functions um, and that we want to have solidarity with um, other workers as well. This solidarity with the labor movement is important because it's often said that the public isn't usually predisposed to supporting public defenders or their clients. And it makes sense when you understand how much the public is exposed to crime narratives and tough-on-crime morality. 538.com recently published an article explicitly on this issue. 
They cited results from the National Survey of Economic Expectations, showing that respondents were terrible at estimating their risk of crime. The article says that across the decade, respondents put their chance of being robbed in the coming year at about 15%. Looking back, the actual rate of robbery was 1.2%. In contrast, when asked to rate their risk of upcoming job loss, people guessed it was about 14.5%, much closer to the actual job loss rate of 12.9%. And these things matter, especially when there's so much debate about police and criminal justice reform. Let's take a short musical break. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio, right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Julian. Let's get back to our segment. Earlier on, when the uprising first began, city politicians responded by passing a few reforms. One of them specifically made chokeholds illegal. But the rise of gun violence, largely in response to the pandemic's impact, is creating political tension about further reforms of the police and the criminal justice system. This is what Jalen said about that. Oftentimes the NYPD manipulates data to get to make to prove their like certain agendas, like they did with bail reform, and then um like that, that, that bail reform caused a hike in these certain crimes. Um and then after the fact they go back and later say that, you know, oh no, we just misinterpreted the data, you know. So it's like, it's common for them to do these kind of things, right? And it's NYPD who, you know, gets paid um, overtime, like upwards of like, you know, like double their salary sometimes in overtime. Now aren't like, you know, getting paid for the court appearances and not getting paid for this. And people who have like staked their lives on, you know, corralling people and blocking them in the cages are now receiving less of their income. And now they're going to push to do whatever to get their income. So now they're pushing this narrative that, you know, because of the, the courts are closed, which the courts aren't closed, so the courts are still arraigning people, the courts are still setting bail, the courts are still doing everything they've been doing before, I mean, to a certain extent, um, but it's just being done virtually, right? So this argument that, like, because it's happening virtually, then, you know, it's been a spike in crime. But no, it's not the case. We know that every summer there's been a spike in crime. If there even is a spike in crime, it's because of, you know, the policy failures from de Lazio, right? It's because of the failed policing practices from the MIPD, if there even is a spike in crime. But, I mean, I would go and say that it isn't. That it isn't a spike in crime. According to a recent Gotham Gazette article, Mayor de Blasio's efforts to address gun violence rely on old practices such as gun buyback programs, more police foot patrols, and a greater presence of police overall. The mayor is being criticized for not addressing the root causes of these issues by just throwing more police at communities. And even then, Statistics show that police arrests are down 39% compared to last year, 
which is only fueling more suspicions that the NYPD is engaging in a slowdown to push back on the reforms. And it might be working. Most recently, the New York City Council is rethinking the chokehold ban and are in current negotiations with City Hall about modifying the language in the ban. They're doing this to ease concerns by police unions that the ban will criminalize cops who use force, like placing a knee over a person's diaphragm to make an arrest. This is one of the reasons police reformers don't trust the police's role in honestly engaging in the debates over reform. For their part, reformers argue that an attempt to address the root causes of gun violence should not rely on police presence. Mark Winston Griffith, executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center, told Gotham Gazette that when you talk about putting more police on the street, that does not speak to gun violence. It speaks to control. It speaks to surveillance. It speaks to punishment and incarceration. It doesn't speak to what leads to someone picking up a gun and deciding that they want to use it on somebody else. It's with these concerns, addressing root causes, that Jalen speaks to a question that I asked him about the overloaded backlog that OCA argues is one of the reasons for reopening the criminal courts. Well, I think first what they would need to do is just dismiss a lot of these cases, right? Like you have like this backlog of like desk appearance tickets, which is basically like a summons that says you need to go to court. And most of the time those, those kind of things are just handled with like an ACD, which is a, a German in contemplation of dismissal, which basically means that you don't, you go six months without um, doing something and it's just dismissed. So I think first and foremost, if you want to handle the backlogs, which are all these minor things to deal with anyway, then it should just be dismissed. You shouldn't even worry about the backlog of cases because we should just dismiss those cases. Um, as far as the things where people are still being caged, then I think that those cases should be called so that you can work out an appropriate you know, way, an appropriate solution to get these, uh, get those people out of jail, right? So whether it be like, you know, you reduce their bail amount so they have less of a ransom to pay for their freedom, you know? Or if you like put them in a program like supervised release or like something else like that so they can like, make sure that like try to ensure that person will return to court when, when the court case comes you know like stop criminalizing things that just don't matter like we can do things that aren't um that just aren't like penalizing people um because they have to do things to survive you know like still or um petty larceny those kind of things we start by dismissing those and then we go on to you know release people who are already released i mean maybe we could start with that too we can start with releasing people um, who are in cages right now, who aren't sentenced of anything, people who who are just literally just sitting there because they don't have to, because they can't afford to pay their bill or because they have a minor parole violation and they're not even actually being charged with the, like the, the, the charge, the, the crime that they're actually being charged with is going to be dismissed, but because they're on parole, they have to sit in cage for 90 days, you know, like, we can start by, you know, reducing those like sentences, releasing those people and, you know, like getting people out of jail. But let's set this aside for now and get back to the fight over the September 15th return to office deadline. Jalen's co-workers were shocked about going back into the offices. I know the practice heads had met with their practice areas and informed us of, you know, this start date of September 15th, return to offices, and we were just losing our minds. We couldn't believe just the cascade of things that were happening all of a sudden when you had just, as we pointed out in our statement, sued OCA weeks back. 
you know, all of a sudden this is like this complete defeatist uh, attitude and a betrayal of those that you had been working uh, for and alongside and on behalf of. As a shop, it was really easy for us to, to say like, once again, this is completely wrong. Not only is this reckless, haphazard, needless, um, but you know, you can't do it. It's a change in the terms and conditions of our employment. This has to be collectively bargained for. We are calling them out on the various fronts, you know, on an ethical, moral front, because this is a moral issue and imperative that we're going for here, uh, but also on the legal uh, aspects as well. Legal workers threatened with the return to work date knew that they had to turn to their co-workers and mobilize them. They needed to put out a sort of vote of confidence to push back on their employer's plans. They had many concerns and spoke to them here. We thought, you know, in speaking with our clients and in thinking about the problem and the policy issues and, um, you know, trying to keep up as much as possible with the health experts that, um, you know, it was a really bad idea to rush us back, both for the workers and for our clients, uh, you know, who um, are you know, often from communities here that are most heavily impacted by COVID-19. So they put together a survey where they asked questions to their co-workers. Here are a few of the results based on the responses of 385 legal workers. 66.4% of the workers responded not at all confident that their manager's draft protocol made it safe to return to the office. Another 14.8% were somewhat confident but another 17% were unsure. This spoke to an overall resistance and it didn't take much more to get their employers to respond. Management had given us a start date of September 15th for returning to the offices across the board with no input from our unions whatsoever, which, you know, frankly, I think is in violation of our collective bargaining agreement. And uh, the fact that we pushed back in different ways, the way HCLO pushed back, the way that the Bronx has pushed back, the way that every, you know, uh, Brooklyn has pushed back, ultimately resulted in management releasing a statement saying that they are no longer going to have that start date. So it just shows when you fight back, you can win. Delegates from 1199 SCIU and ALAA, unions representing the legal workers fighting the return to work date, both released statements to their employer that listed safety demands the employer would have to guarantee before there were any considerations about going back to the workplace. Both of the union statements demanded the employer allow full remote work setup if their members requested it. The statements and the readiness of the unions to defend their members' safety was enough to get the September 15th return to work date dropped. This is one of the benefits of having union representation at your workplace. Without unions, legal workers would likely face having to choose between their health and their job. So to wrap up this segment, I asked Jalen one last question. I asked him who he thinks would benefit from the reopening of the courts. This is what he said. Who stands the benefit from this? It's kind of difficult. So on the one hand, I would say maybe like the like the Office of Court Administration. I mean, and maybe it is them like on the higher up side, um, but all to all the judges and all the court officers and all the, you know, like all the workers in the situation, they're definitely not benefiting from now entering, you know, a COVID courthouse. It's definitely not benefiting like the legal workers uh, who are like the defense workers who now have to go in to the courthouses. I mean, maybe those organizations are receiving more 
um, funding because they get to, because they're like not picking up clients, but they still were picking up clients before too. So I wouldn't say it was them. I mean, the only thing that I can really think of like objectively who's like would be winning from this are like landlords who, who, um, who want to evict people, right? So they can kick these people out. They can take them to court. They can sue them, whatever, get their money, kick them out and rent their apartment to someone else. Um, and I think that's really like, from what I can see is like the only clear winner in the situation um, are the landlords who in theory would go back to, you know, kicking people out of their houses, evicting them, um, even when it is, um, you know, a global pandemic. The fights around reopening the city continues, and it's clear that not everybody, like de Blasio said at his press conference, is on the same page. New Yorkers are going to continue to push back on city plans that don't guarantee their safety, and we're going to continue to cover this issue. Next on our list is housing court, and the fights that tenants are waging across the city to keep it closed. And we'd like to hear from you as well, so if you have any stories of your own, leads or tips for stories that we're working on, give us a call at 929-352-0134. You can leave us a voicemail and we'll get back to you. My name is Julian Guerrero, reporting on behalf of Working Class Heroes Radio. Side by side in the revolution Won't stay silent for things that I love Cause we know them not care about us Why men can't jump but at least they can't run Both these chains to put hands up They can never see the kingdom coming You wanna see us all amount to nothing I can see your face, see the light in your eyes I can see the change, feel the heat of the fire you can feel the pain and you know you're alive Both feet on the line, by enemies I will fight For you, for you, enemies I will fight For you, for you, by enemies I will fight For you, for you, by enemies I will fight For you, for you I've spent too many days in my head now did you think we would forget how Too many destinies, too many sentences Red now, red now See all this pain in the headlines But I have cried for the last time But no, I haven't seen you would be blind If it was just an eye for an eye 
And what if we change the world? We rise from the flames, the victor. It's far from a perfect picture. I know it's sinful, but we are human. Would you be grateful if you took my place? Say my name. There is redemption in the steps we take. Say one life, and I'm gonna use it. Innocence till I'm proven. One last chance, and you blew it. One last dance in the ruins. So much hate in your movements. Told me I couldn't prove it. One last prayer for the sinners. You only learn what you witness. I can see your face, see the light in your eyes. I can see the change through the heat of the fire. If you can feel the You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. What you just listened to was Georgia Smith and her song, By Any Means Necessary. Due to some last-minute scheduling issues, we won't be able to take callers as we had originally hoped. But you can always reach us with your thoughts and questions via social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching at WCH Radio. Please support us and this station by donating on behalf of Working Class Heroes at WBAI.org. Please consider supporting us and this community station by donating on behalf of Working Class Heroes at WBAI.org. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. We'll catch you next time. Until then, stay safe, stay vigilant, and as always, New York, in solidarity.